Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern to the body of Christ through this radio program, conferences, and other events, and our ministry of online resources to encourage the body of Christ to thoughtfully consider and interact with the issues of our day with the heart and mind of Christ. We invite you to visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We have resources there on faith and art, faith and science, spiritual formation, and many interesting speakers, including Oz Guinness, Andy Crouch, Walter Bradley, Eugene Peterson, Alistair McGrath, and many others who work in areas such as environmental stewardship, fighting human trafficking, and caring for the poor. Today, our topic is apologetics and evangelism. Our special guest today is Michael Ramsden. Michael is the international director of RZIM, that's Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and has been part of RZIM since its foundation in Europe in 1997. Michael is also joint director of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, he was brought up in the Middle East and later moved to England, where he worked for the Lord Chancellor's Department, investing funds. Michael, uh, thank you for being with us today. Uh, I'd like for our listeners to, to get to know a bit about you, and we're, we're so glad you can you can be here. So, uh, I, I, well, It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, Michael. I understand you grew up in the Middle East. Uh, where, where were you born? Well, I um, spent my, my childhood um, living in the United Arab Emirates and also then Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, I was born here in the UK of mixed parentage, but we left the country at such a young age that um, really all of my childhood memories are from the Middle East um, rather than uh, from, from over here in the UK. So did, did, did your family um, business or family involvement then bring you back to the UK? No, it was what brought me back initially was uh, to work for a while um, and then go off to um, university. Um, and I, but I, I stepped into the West, if you like, having had all of my cultural upbringing in the Middle East. And so there was a little bit of a, a culture shock there. And also during that process, while living in the Middle East, I'd actually become a Christian. So it was very interesting for me coming back into a part of the world which I thought of being a very Christian world and very quickly realized that actually it wasn't. Well, you, you would have had uh, the antenna of a of a person coming into a new land then, not only as a Christian, but as a person coming what was home, but not necessarily the home that you were used to. That's right. And I think also all of my cultural experience was an Islamic culture. So uh, it was very clear that there was a very big difference between, between the two. Um, and I was also very interested. Well, I think when I came over to the West, um, not knowing a huge amount um, about the culture over here, the thing that I think surprised me most was I met people who who felt that maybe it was very difficult to talk about God or the Christian faith in our culture. And actually, bizarrely, coming from the Middle East, it, it seemed very easy, a very easy thing to do. And that's still uh, my experience today. There's a lot of people with a lot of real questions, which they feel very deeply, uh, but they're just not sure where they can go to ask them or who maybe they can ask them of. Yeah, a comfort level both in uh, relationally and about the information that they'll receive, isn't it? That's right. I think a lot of people are wanting to know and feel that they're being presented with a range of questions which are being raised by the culture and we're not sure what the answers are. And what to make the things even more confusing is we've taught so long in our Western schools that there are no right answers to life's big questions. You can come up with any answer you want to. That we, it's not that we've lost sight of the answers. What's actually happened now is we've lost sight of the questions. We're so unused to asking and handling those questions, we're not even sure what the questions are anymore. So the level of confusion in the culture is absolutely massive. 
Yeah, that's interesting. When I when I was with the Labrie people uh, many years ago, uh, they they talked about people not asking questions. They they they, they felt like it was a how would how would you describe it? Just a dearth of of uh, of thinking, a dearth of of digging into the issues of the day, and so they welcomed questions. It was almost like, would you ask some questions, please? And is that is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I I don't know if you've ever gone to seek help from somebody, either whether it's a consultant in business or a counselor in a relationship. Uh, you can feel a question even if you can't articulate it. So you may feel that there's something which isn't right, but you just can't put your heart um, and mind around it appropriately. And if someone steps into a situation like that and says, well, is this the question you're really asking? And you think, yes, there's almost a sense of excitement just thinking you're actually asking the question that I would love to hear asked. You're putting words to something which I feel even though it's hard to articulate. And I think partly what we need to be doing in our current culture is helping people ask good good questions, um, which is very often when, when I'm speaking or any of our team working with RZIM is speaking, our titles very often are questions. They're the questions that we hear people asking all the time, or if we ask, they're very excited that someone asked it. Well, in, in, uh, in, the, in the context of your talks, you, you talk about uh, apologetics. And we, we use the term apologetics um, probably loosely. Would, would you help us to maybe have a better biblical understanding of what apologetics really is? Sure. I mean, I think at the most basic level, you can say if there are questions and we're looking for answers, your apologetic is, is the answer you may give to that question. And in that sense, everyone is is doing it. Now, the, the word itself, its origin, as it comes to us through Scripture, is that it's used about 26 times in the New Testament. Um, It's used by the early Christians to describe their own ministry. Paul says, I'm set for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And the word he uses there is the word apologetic. Um, This is what I'm meant to be doing. And the reason is, is that they're living in a culture that doesn't embrace their value system, doesn't embrace their beliefs, wants to challenge their beliefs or is indifferent to their beliefs. And they're thinking, well, we we have to make a response. We have to give an answer to this. How do we do it? Uh, and the scripture tells us we need to do it with gentleness and respect and keeping, keeping a clear conscience. Uh, but it also says that we actually have to to be able to do it. And I think what happens for a lot of Christians is that they feel, even if they can recognize the questions, the next thing they immediately think of is, ooh, is there actually a good answer? Or is there an answer which I could give that wouldn't see everybody just running for the hills? Um, and I think certainly in the States right now, there are a lot of people whose understanding of the Christian faith is a misunderstanding and so partly what you're doing with apologetics is you're not just giving answers to other people's questions. You're also helping to question other people's answers and also even learning to question the question itself to say, is that the right question? Are you sure, therefore, you're getting the right answer here? Here's the answer uh, that I think should be given. And so you see Christ doing this. You see the early apostles doing this and the first disciples supremely well in the New Testament. Uh, and you see that God himself likes asking lots of difficult questions, and you get many of them in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and they're all designed to make us think. Yeah, what you're, what you're describing is, is both listening and, and, and uh, making a positive statement, because you're, you're trying to listen and hear what they're really saying, and then you're trying to build something from that, and, then, and it's a response and interactive uh, type of, of action that goes on that's not just giving propositions, not just giving facts, but listening and trying to respond and then listening again and trying to respond to the deeper question, isn't it? 
That's right. That's absolutely correct. I think it comes back to this thing of what do you do if you're in a culture where you can feel the tension of something, you can feel a lack of clarity about something, but you're struggling to to articulate or describe it. How do you engage with that culture? I think it's also true to say where we are that there are now some people who feel they have thought these things through very carefully and are very vociferous about them. And so at the same time, what's happened in Western culture is there's been this huge awakening to the idea of apologetics. Everyone's asking these questions. Uh, When I go into the classroom, when I go into my university lecture theater, when I'm in my business, people are saying, how can you possibly believe in a God? Isn't it a load of rubbish? Does this this actually make any sense? And um, that means that actually inadvertently the huge growth in secularist ideas and publishing and that whole agenda has actually put God very firmly back on the agenda in many ways because in one sense now everyone are asking questions about this even if there isn't a lot of information informing the way they think about it or process it. Yeah, so so the the, the very volume and, and sometimes vociferous nature of uh, the new atheists say uh, maybe that turns people off and turns them to ask further questions, doesn't it? It can do. Um, as a matter of fact, I, our next door neighbours here in Oxford, who are atheists, um, they recently <laughs> came and asked for a favour. They said, "Look, we're atheists. Um, uh, they're connected to the university here. They have been reading um, a lot of some of the more vociferous, quite angry atheists, and they said we feel ashamed reading what they have to say and how they're making fun. And we're wondering, is there any way we could read the Bible with you to find out what Christianity actually says?" Because we don't actually feel we know, we feel it's been attacked all the time, but we don't know what's actually in it. So, quite interestingly, for some people, the rise of temperature, if you like, of opposition, is also at the same time thinking, "Well, wait a minute, what is it that I? Why do I feel so strongly about this? And do I actually really agree with what's being said? I, let me find out for myself." And so, we have a very large number of people in the, in our culture who actually don't know that much about Christianity, don't know much that much about the Bible. Um, they know the questions; they can feel. A concern about those questions and uh, if there's an opportunity where that can be meaningfully engaged with in, in a way that they understand and can follow uh, they're actually prepared to come along and listen yeah i think sometimes you can just ask uh, well tell me about the god you believe in and then you find out well i don't believe in that god either you know it becomes it <laughs> yeah absolutely, you're absolutely right yeah. very often what's being described isn't actually what christians worship so Yes. Well, you you mentioned just now that you that you live in Oxford. Uh, I mean, what a have great a, attraction and enjoyment from having been there. I'm think of C.S. Lewis and the Inklings, and uh, what a what a beautiful place. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful city to live in, and it's also a very challenging city to live in. Um, but it is both architecturally and culturally um, uh, a bit a little, something of a melting pot. Now there must be at least, you know somewhere between 150 to 250 different nationalities represented in the population of the city, simply because of the sheer number of students who come to study at the universities in the town. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, if you walk down the street, you can hear every language under the sun and you can eat almost anything you want to these days because uh, there's a group somewhere that want to cook it. And that goes back to your background in the Middle East. I think, I think that you, you have a great advantage then from having the perspective of having lived in different cultures. I, I'm tremendously uh, grateful for that that part of my my own history. I think it it does not not just in terms of food, but just in terms of people, in terms of how people communicate, interact. 
you know, I grew up in a way in which people interacted very differently. And as a matter of fact, the first thing I noticed when I came to the West, having been raised in an Islamic culture, was in the West, everyone was very nervous about speaking about God and religion and politics and so on with people of Islamic faith for fear of causing offense. Whereas I lived in that part of the world, and that's what people wanted to talk about all the time. And what I very quickly realized was that most of the people I knew, Muslims I knew living in the West, wanted to have this discussion and were amazed that they felt most Westerners were blanking them on it, which they interpreted as rudeness. You think I'm not worth talking to, which is why you're not engaging me with this conversation. So we in the West were thinking, oh, well, we're being polite by not raising this with you. Those coming from the Middle East were thinking, how can you guys just simply blank and shut me out and not even go there? Uh, And you could see the beginnings of a misunderstanding even 25 years ago when I moved moved back to the UK uh, between two communities that weren't communicating with each other very well. That's a, that's a fascinating perspective. So so we're, on the Western side, we're a little bit afraid, and we've, we've got some reasons we can talk about about why why that's part of our uh, way of being. But uh, but in the, then in the Middle East, they they want to engage, so they feel a bit insulted or put off by not being engaged about spiritual matters. Well, yeah, I think that's that's largely right, and um, I can even remember a few years ago being involved in a. Uh, discussion amongst uh, a small group of Western leaders, uh, just as the Arab Spring, so-called Arab Spring started with all of the violence that we now see reported on our TV in that part of the world. Just as that was breaking, there was a a discussion going on. Will this be like Eastern Europe when the wall came down and, you know, there'll be this peaceful transition? Some people felt that. Or will the whole thing descend into into violence? And I can remember there was a very senior British politician in the room who I probably shouldn't name, and what they said utterly surprised me because I'd never heard it uh, from one of our political leaders before. They opened the, this discussion by saying, we have totally underestimated the importance of the theological nature of this discussion. And we're in, ill-equipped to deal with it, which is why we've been so ineffective in our in our dialogue with people in the Middle East. And I, I was so surprised to hear that. It was the last thing I thought they would say. But at least there is now a growing recognition that maybe that side is important and it's a conversation that we should have. Certainly. Well, there's a there's another bit of your background that I'd like for people to know about. Um, you were you were uh, involved in the UK government. You were in the office of the Lord Chancellor, and uh, when I hear Lord Chancellor, you know, I, I, my mind somehow goes to Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is not the Lord Chancellor. Would you would you tell us what a, what the Lord Chancellor's role is in the English government and what you did in in in, in his uh, office? Well, <laughs> this is all changed now because we've had some constitutional changes and it may sound grander than it was. But what the, the Chancellor's Office did most of its life doing was actually overseeing our legal system. And the reason I wanted to go work with them for a while is I wanted to go and do a law degree, which I did. And I thought at that point that my life would be involved in law. Um, but within the Lord Chancellor's uh, uh, department at the time, um, there was a small office that dealt with um, what were called trusts, which for you guys in the States would be sort of like a, like uh, either individual or government uh, investment funds where the civil, the, the pay, the, the, the pension for the civil service or for the fire department or the police department would be invested on the stock market. And also they... Uh, would become a trustee of what's called last resort. If someone had left a very complicated will or a large sum of money and there was a dispute over where it would go, we would be in charge with looking after it and investing it on behalf of the beneficiaries. 
And that opened my... And initially, I didn't want to get involved in that kind of thing. I thought I wouldn't enjoy it. Uh, the big surprise for me is when I started working there is I realized I loved thinking about how markets worked and stock markets and investments, what made things go up and down. Uh, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself uh, working there. Um, and it, it gave me a real heart to think about the economic side of life also much more deeply uh, and more systematically. Well, Michael, with your uh, visit here... I think one of one of the things that people um, are, inter- are interested in is how how do we think about economics? How do we think about uh, cultural matters related to how businesses are run? And so you you have this uh, this hands on experience. You know, I think there there are there are people who who come. From, you know, Paul is one who came from a certain background, called into a different way of relating. We think of Chuck Colson here in the states. You know, trained as a lawyer and. Ended up in prison and then had uh, developed a great ministry. So, so that background I think gives you uh, a, a way of uh, of talking and seeing that perhaps somebody that's 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 only taught or only been to seminary uh, doesn't see. Uh, and how you know when we when we think about integrity in business, one of one of your topics, mm-hmm. uh, when we think about a company like WorldCom or Enron. You know, big big names here that that had ethical issues and and cost people uh, literally billions of dollars. Uh, how does how does a Christian think about integrity in business, and and then how does that lead to to additional conversations? Well, I find it fascinating that in the Old Testament, God various uh, various times declares that He abhors inaccurate weights and measures. And I think the reason that that language is used so strongly is that in an agricultural community, which Israel was, the basic unit by which you determine value were weights and measures. And if that measure itself became corrupt, it had a destabilizing effect for the entire political economy. And I think the same is just as much true then as it is now. Um, We see a huge lack of confidence right across the Western world. People are wondering whether... Uh, the, the system that we built is actually sustainable, whether we're looking at a much bigger crunch yet to come. And right at the heart of it is this question of trust. Who can I trust? Um, we used to feel that we could trust the banks. A lot of people now feel that actually they can't trust the banking sector in which they once did. They look at World Common Enron, and before we experience some of these things personally, we think, well, integrity doesn't really matter in business. It's totally irrelevant. Um, you know, it's a dog out, dog, dog eat dog out. You just go and do whatever you can. The trouble is, is that if you bank with a bank that thinks that way, or you invest in a company that thinks that way, you very quickly find you've actually got nothing <laughs> because they've actually put that principle into effect. So one of the huge challenges we now face in the Western economy is how do we regain a sense of trust in the system and how do we actually run the system in a responsible way so as to have that trust there? Um, and this question of integrity is something that dominates all of our all of our thinking. Um, and there's a, there's an illustration I sometimes give that may be helpful here. We we often think that integrity in business is a luxury, but what we need to understand is integrity goes right to the heart of every single type of business there is. And if you if you don't believe that, the easiest way to prove it would be to go and join the mafia. And then after you've joined them, try stealing from them, lying to them, cheating them, betraying them you will find they have a very highly developed ethical and moral sense and their compliance department responds very swiftly to any breach of that ethic, ethical or moral stance. Uh, the question isn't, is there a circle of morality? The question is, how wide does that circle of morality extend? Is it only to ourselves 
or just to the family, or just to the company, or just to our city, or just to our nation, or to everybody. It's not a question of whether there is a circle, this ethical moral circle. The question is how all-encompassing is it? And I think what's happened is because we've confused the nature of the question, we've thought, well, integrity doesn't matter, and therefore we don't need to think about it. And we've taught that in our business schools. Now people are living that way. We find it's totally unlivable, but we don't know how to recover it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a foundational block for the system. And, you know, where do you, where do you go back to see a breakdown in the system? I mean, if you go back to Nisha, uh, if God is dead, then there has to be another ethic. And so what, what is the other ethic, and how does that give the foundation of integrity in business if Christianity and its ethical structure and Christianity is much more than an ethical structure, but yet ethics come out of it. So it, 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 You're absolutely right. And if you're saying, um, for example, the only ethic is survival of the fittest, where the strong prey on the weak, and you enact that into the business world, then you're, there are going to be various uh, problems. Um, so, and, and I think what's happened is I say, not all the dots have always been connected for everybody in a way that makes people understand why might this actually be important? Why should we be concerned about this? But even in the politics, I mean, you're involved in, you know, uh, some electioneering over there right now. Uh, my understanding is uh, we get to, we have reports of it over here in Oxford as well. And you just look at the cynicism some people feel about politics or their disappointment or their disillusionment. It's the same question. Who can we trust? Uh, where's integrity in this? Um, you know, all these promises which are being made and all these things which are being said, can we rely or depend on them? And I think a lot of people feel they've been let down for a very long period of time. Uh, and that just builds, um, which is why I think, you know, one political commentator has recently said, you know, the big debate now isn't between right versus left in politics. It's versus it's about establishment versus anti-establishment. Uh, do we need anti-establishment figures because we feel they're more trustworthy because they're not part of the system? Uh, so these things are not just shaping the way we think about our theology or our economics. They they shape the way we think about politics. They shape the future of nations um, as they go forward to decide who their leader should be. Yes, and we at the Hill Country Institute, we, we work hard to, to not be partisan. And yet mm-hmm. an, an issue like ethics, that's not a partisan issue. That's, a, that's an issue that transcends uh, any, any belief system, left or right. So you, you do get back to a question of who you can trust. And that's, that, is, that seems to be the core issue this year in American politics with candidates rising up on both sides who are outside of the mainstream. And it's a question of the, the perception that the government hasn't done what the candidates had promised in past elections. So, uh, but try, going back to business, though, if, if a CEO makes promises and doesn't keep them, the stock market reacts accordingly. Uh, there is a corrective mechanism there. But when a company like WorldCom, uh, you know, distorts information or Enron, then, then there's not only a, a – not only does it get hammered in, in the next uh, day in the trading, but the company eventually fails and people lose jobs and people lose uh, billions of dollars of investment as well as loans. So – how do we how, how do we show that Christianity gives ethics that are meaningful in that larger context? Well, and I, I, I think the you, there are two questions that have to be raised there. One is about purpose, and then the other one is about relationship. The purpose question goes something like this: Why are we doing this business in the first place? And if the goal is only to make money, well, if, if all you want to do is make money, you can do that as a bank robber. You don't need 
a very highly developed sense of ethics in that sense. As long as you can steal money and get away with it, you may find you have a very profitable model. Um, so when we actually talk about the business world, what we're actually talking about is already a slightly broader question, which is, um, which is what does it mean to s- trade goods or services at a profit? And that leads into the second question about long-term relationships. And any business that has a huge question of integrity raised about it will find it affects their profitability because it affects people's relationship with that company or that corporation, all the leaders of it, and people think maybe we can't trust you. So Volkswagen have found this out to their cost very much in the last few months, which is when the whole emission scandal came out and that they were, you know, uh, come up with these defeat devices in order to be able to sell cars in the US, United States market, which would uh, fool the EPA into thinking they were cleaner than they were. Uh, when that suddenly comes to light, people feel, uh, first of all, a relational betrayal. We we thought we could trust you. We thought we could trust these figures. We thought your company had integrity and that that we could rely on what you were saying and the representations you were making. And now they're suddenly realizing, actually, oh, my goodness, no, we couldn't. It's not just the fact that you were massaging these figures to your benefit, but you were out there to deliberately mislead. Well, what else are you misleading us about? So it starts raising lots of integrity questions. Which So I think for people to see this bigger picture, and I think right at the heart of the Christian faith, this idea of, look, there is a standard. But when you ask the question about why integrity matters, you also have to deal with the question why integrity fails. And so when you look at the biblical model, it is very much relationally framed, both in terms of people's relationship with God and with each other. And relationships are also morally and ethically driven. Our friends are people we can trust. If people betray our trust, they cease to be our friends. Uh, we don't confide in them anymore. We don't share with them. So it's. Uh, I think we need, what the Bible does is it gives us a relational understanding of how we relate to God and to other people, which is morally and ethically driven. It helps us see what happens when you're in breach of those ethics or morals, how it destroys relationship. But most interestingly, in the Christian faith, obviously, it raises this question of, well, is forgiveness possible? And is there a process of redemption that can help you recover that which is lost. And that's obviously very much where the Christian gospel and cross comes in, not just in affirming that there are standards and these things really do matter, but also making a provision for when we do fail and when we have messed up. Um, If you can't answer the question, what do we do when integrity fails, and you're in the business world, every time you you fail, you have to hide it for fear of losing your job or whatever. Um, But those buried failures eventually can bring a whole corporation down. And as you say, you know, you've already named a few, but I, I can remember I had a brother who worked for Arthur Anderson, uh, which at one point was the largest and most aggressive and most profitable accountancy firm on the planet. Um, and it was wiped out of existence in three to four days because of a massive ethical moral failure. Um, and everyone felt we can't trust you anymore. And all of their clients, everything disappeared. And within in, in less than a week. Um, I mean, it was barely credible. I remember speaking to a group of very highly placed CEOs and CFOs of major international corporations. And I could remember at the time, my opening line to them being, if I were to tell you that one of the biggest, most successful, most recognizable firms in this industry could disappear off the face of the planet in less than a week because of a serious ethical failure, would you have believed me? Uh, And you could see from everyone's expression, the answer was no, but it had just happened. And so I think we need to be reminded um, about the importance of these things. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's incredible to see a meltdown like that, and, and it's happened at, in various different ways. Enron, WorldCom, Arthur Anderson, um, and other names that go on, and then other lesser scandals that have hurt companies that have, that have survived. 
But uh, Michael, let's let's um, let's come back to that in in the second half of our of our program. It's time now for a brief break. This is Hill Country Institute Live. We're glad you're with us today. This is the program that brings you, the listener, together with Christian leaders to discuss topics of concern, including faith and work, stopping human trafficking, environmental stewardship, and more all with the heart and mind of Christ. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to previous programs and to hear audio and video from our past conferences on many faith and culture topics, including art, science, and spiritual formation. We also ask you to consider supporting this ministry through your donations at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512-680-7993. We'll be right back. 